Welcome to Reconcile Church Miami, Pastor Joel Alonso. As you can tell by the Christmas music or Christmassy music that we were singing, we have come into December, into the month that we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, we will be in Isaiah chapter 7 today, reading verses 10 to 25. Let me go ahead and read that for us so that we can uh, get end. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord, your God, that from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating butter and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you your people and the house of your fathers such a time has that as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. The king of Assyria is coming. On that day, the Lord will whistle to the fly that is in the farthest streams of the Nile and to the bee that is in the land of Assyria. All of them will come and settle in the steep ravines, in the clefts of the rock, in all the thorn bushes, in all the water holes. On that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the head, the hair on the legs, and to remove the beard as well. On that day, a man will raise a young cow and two sheeps, and from the abundant milk they give, he will eat butter. For every survivor in the land will eat butter and honey. On that day, every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of silver will become thorns and briars. A man will go there with bow and arrows because the whole land will be thorns and briars. You will not go to all the hills that were once tilled with a hoe for fear of the thorns and briars. Those hills will be places for oxen to graze and for sheep to trample. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you because you are with us. You are a God who is not far off, who is not distant, who is not unconcerned with your children, but you are a God who is with us. There is not a moment of the day that you are far. There is not a moment of our week that we are without you. So teach us to sing of you. Teach us to praise you. Teach us to trust in you and to rest in all that you are. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. So uh, I I just want to go into a little bit of a background of Isaiah. uh, Just to kind of introduce to you guys where we will be for the next few weeks. Uh, We will be in Isaiah in different parts of Isaiah. But... um, it's, it's crucial to understand where uh, Judah is at the time that Isaiah received and delivered this message. Okay, uh, Judah and Israel have split. They are no longer one nation. They are two nations with each their own king. 
The king of, uh, of, of, of Judah is Ahaz and Pekah is the king of Israel. Uh, and so we have these two different nations that are no longer unified. Uh, this book is, or Isaiah prophesies or, or serves as a prophet between 740 BC and 681 BC. And so we have, uh, about 80 years or so of prophecy from, uh, from Isaiah. He covers a large span of time. And so Isaiah is serving as a prophet to Judah, to Ahaz. He is, uh, as his counsel, he is, is, uh, is, is serving as God's mouthpiece to his people in Judah. So where we are today in chapter 7, Ahaz, the king of Judah, is against Pekah, the king of Israel, because the king of Israel has tried to get him to join him and the Syrians to face the Assyrians. So I just want to be clear. There's Israel, Judah. Syria and Assyria. And so Israel and Syria have joined together to fight Assyria and have asked Israel, uh, Judah to help. Judah says, no, we will not help you because Isaiah has told him, don't do it. Um, so Ahaz and Judah or Judah has refused to join them because Isaiah warned Ahaz that all he had to do was trust in the Lord. Uh, the Lord heard the plight of Judah and listened, right? In verse 6 and 7, 6 and 7 of this same chapter, we hear, uh, let us go against Judah. This is Israel and Syria talking. Terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. So this is Israel and Syria conspiring against their brother Judah to conquer it because they have said no to joining them. If you can't beat them, beat them more, right? Um, so Isaiah tells Ahaz, don't do it. The Lord says in verse 7, it will not happen. It will not occur. They shall not conquer you. So this is where Judah is. This is their political backdrop. They are currently at war with the world. And God has their, he, they have God's ear. Judah is alone against the world, being attacked by Syria and Israel. The only people that they were supposed to be able to trust in Israel has turned on them. The people who they called true brothers have turned on them, and they face complete destruction. Either the Assyrians are going to come in and destroy us, or Israel and Syria are going to come and destroy us, but Ahaz is here, I am king, and I'm going to die. This is significant to understand for us for a few reasons. But first is that we are never cornered in a place where God cannot work. Okay? We are never cornered in a place where God cannot work his miracles. That he cannot work out his plan. That never happens. We are in exactly the, the place that God wants us to be so that he can display to us his amazing love. This also means that we are never abandoned by our brothers and sisters unto death. I want to clarify that with unto death. We can be abandoned by brothers and sisters, by the same people that we break bread with. We can be abandoned by them, but never Unto destruction. 
What do I mean by that? We are always sustained by God alone, not just by the people around us. The people around us help to sustain us. God uses those people around us to sustain us, but we are, at the end of the day, only sustained by God. God can remove people and replace them if he so pleases, but we are sustained by him. And the last thing that I want to bring up is that we, are, we never have reason to doubt what God has promised. We are always guaranteed what God promises. God puts his signature on his promises. He writes that check for you. You have no reason to doubt when you go to cash that check that the funds are there. God secures. God promises. God sustains everything that he tells you. So here where God is telling Isaiah, tell them that it shall not occur, it shall not pass. It does not happen. But in Judah, not everything is as it seems. Not everything is square and kosher. We can think, oh man, you know what? This story is sounding cool. Like Judah is going to trust in the Lord and, 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 and God's going to, you know, is, is going to rescue them and, and everything is going to be fine and Judah is going to be this starling child. It's not, it's not how it happens. But we'll talk more about that later. Let's get right into our passage now after this backdrop, after this, um, after this, um, background information that we see in Isaiah up until this point. So uh, I'll read uh, the first four uh, verses again. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, asked for a sign from the Lord, from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's important to understand the concept that God and his plans are far above and beyond our own. That he has purposes and commands for our lives that we are continually fleeing from and seeking our own method to solve them. That is you and me on a daily basis. We are under the guidance of God, but we are always fleeing that. We are always trying to seek our own way until we bump our head enough times and we finally say, all right, God, you know, I'll give you a shot. Sounds silly, but that's who we are. That's how we act. Our disobedience and fleeing from God is the reason why Judah is in this predicament in the first place. Well, not ours. They're fleeing from God and disobedience is the reason they're in this predicament. Okay, we see that in verses uh, 2 and 3. I of chapter one, listen, heavens and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is God speaking of his prized children. You ready? I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God's people are being told that ox and donkeys are smarter than they are. 
this is kind of rough. It's kind of rough. I mean, and then we walk around church and we say, like, yeah, man, you can't judge me. You can't, what, right? Like, man, we're being called donkeys and, 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 and oxen, man. Let's, let's get a good picture of ourselves here. So their rebellion, their fleeing from their God is the reason why Isaiah is telling them this is happening. You do not know the God of, of your people. You do not know God, your father. He has brought you up. He has sustained you to this point, but you do not know. You do not understand him is what they are being told. We have a really good example of this in that Ahaz does not put his trust in the king of heaven. You see, because Ahaz, facing this attack by Israel and Syria, he gathers some gold out of the temple of God. Listen to this, right? This is good stuff. This is like novella stuff, okay? He takes gold out of the temple of Yahweh and sends it to the king of Assyria and says, rescue me, king of Assyria. That's rich, man. You have the king of the universe speaking to you directly and you pick up his stuff and send it to the king of Assyria to help you out. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. So Ahaz is putting his trust in the king of Assyria over the king of the universe. This is a perfect example of our rebellion. How do you do that every single day? How do I do that every single day? Countless ways. So this backdrop, this understanding, this bringing up to, right, helps us to understand why it is so amazing that on Christmas we do not receive a helping hand. On Christmas we do not receive additional help. No, we receive a substitute. We receive somebody to replace us in life completely. We are not helped to get better, but we are replaced. We are substituted for. We cannot do anything correctly. Let's just be frank. So we receive this substitute on Christmas. So a couple of things that I want to see in these four verses is, number one, that God provides himself to us in our most desperate hour. Faced with the news of this incoming attack, Ahaz was not searching for God, but was clamoring to himself. This is where God, in verse 10, speaks, right? So secluded from everything, God sends him Isaiah with a message of hope and directions to trust. But Ahaz would not listen. God is speaking to him, and Ahaz does not listen. So God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try it again. And talks to Ahaz again directly to him. This is not Isaiah told Ahaz, but God speaks to Ahaz first. All right? God speaks to Ahaz directly to give him hope. So this idea of God speaking to us directly, directly to us to give us hope, is the idea behind Christmas, is it not? 
God provides himself directly to us in his son. He doesn't give us just some idea, some lofty thought, some uh, some philosophical notion to believe in, some place to get to. We don't get those things. We get God himself in the manger. Hallelujah. God is doing this with Ahaz directly in speech, but we see on Christmas that we get the word, capital W. Not just that, verse 11 shows us the immensity that is encompassed by God and his person. Ask for a sign. Ask for anything. The craziest thing that you can think of in the depths of hell to the heights of heaven, whatever you can think of, think of it and ask me for it and I'll give it to you. He's not like, all right, you know, like, you want me to change a a bird into a snake or something? Although that's pretty crazy. He says, ask for anything. Ask for a sign. Ask for what you think is out of this world. The largest thing that you can think of, that is what I would show you, says God. What do you think the biggest thing that Ahaz could ask for at that moment? Deliver us. (laughs) Stop these crazy people from coming and killing me. Why, right? I mean, that's pretty nuts. That's pretty crazy. But that's not what Ahaz does. So my second idea is that God provides for us in spite of our self-righteousness. Our self-righteousness does not stop God's intention on our life. So he provides for us anyway. That is not to say that, you know, you can be self-righteous and and try and uh, ignore God for your entire life and you'll be fine. Don't listen to that. I speak. But... He does it in spite of our self-righteousness. Ahaz's response is what? I shall not ask. I cannot test the Lord. Man, it's God talking to you. It's God telling you to ask me for something. But his response is how we all respond to God at times, right? I cannot ask that of God. That would be hypocritical of me. That would be... Uh, stupid of me. God doesn't even really listen to me is really what we're saying. That is our response to God reaching out to us with grace and mercy. Ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And we say, no, I can't do that. God says, ask for the craziest thing and I will show you that I am good. And Ahaz says, it would be wrong of me to do that. So Justin, my my son, loves to build those little toys that have like a trillion pieces and they're like, you know, you can't really play with them afterwards because the second you squeeze them or something, they break apart and you have to start all over again. Yeah, yeah. He loves to build those things. Um, he he sits at the table and you could leave him there and he'll be there forever until he finishes. He loves it. But there comes to a point where he runs into a difficulty, where he runs into a snag, and and he's like, man, I don't know what to do. It's at that point where he remembers his parents, my wife and I, saying, when you run into a problem, you can ask us, and we'll help you. Sometimes he asks us, 
Well, most of the time he asks us. Sometimes he says, no, nah, I don't need to ask them. And so he wrestles with one piece for like 30 minutes, right? Until he finally gives up and says, hey, Joel, or hey, mom, can you help me? That's this picture, right? Faced with a trouble, faced with some kind of difficulty, we have access to help that is beyond us, that is greater than us, and sometimes we say, I'm good, I'll figure it out. Sound like anybody else in here, or am I talking to myself? Man. And it's like, you know, we, 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 we tell that to ourselves and we're like, you know, next time I'm not going to do it. But you know what we're going to do tomorrow? <laughs> we're going to do the same thing. We're going to bump our heads yet again. This is the same problem that Jonah had, presented with what God desired, self-righteousness, and a, a, a thought of that I can be holy enough comes up and Jonah says, No. For those of you unfamiliar with uh, the story of Jonah, God tells Jonah, go and preach to this city, for I desire them to be saved. And Jonah says, they are not good enough for you, God. They are not holy enough. I will not do that. And so he tries to flee his task and ends up being eaten by a fish, spends three days out in the ocean in this fish. I'm pretty sure there was no movie to help him pass the time. And he gets spit out in front of this city, Nineveh, that he was going to be preached to. God is going to do what he wants to do. Okay? But our self-righteousness makes it difficult for us. Our self-righteousness doesn't impede God, but it makes things difficult for us. So God tells Ahaz, I will give you a sign anyway, even though you're self-righteously trying to avoid it. I'm going to give it to you anyway. My third idea is that God provides people to us in our most desperate hour. So he provides himself. He provides, to, uh, he provides in spite of our self-righteousness, but then he also provides people to us in our most desperate hour. God has given Isaiah the message to give to Ahaz. Isaiah's task as a prophet is not to keep Ahaz happy, or to appease him, or to tell him what he wants to hear, or to just support him. Be like, hey man, I really think that, that maybe God uh, might not like that. It's what some counsel sounds like nowadays. Like, oh, you know, I don't know about that. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should pray about that. Like, no, there's times to say, yo, what you're doing is wrong. That is not Isaiah's task to kind of just pat Ahaz on the back and keep him going. No, his task is to bring God's message of deliverance, regardless of what Ahaz believes is good and right. This is what we all need. We all need God's truth brought to us, sometimes in ways that are uncomfortable, sometimes in ways that are blunt, because those are sometimes the only ways that we wake up. Anybody else stubborn in here? That's me. Think about that time that you asked your spouse, hey, does this make me look funny? They're going to have to tell you, right? But you get mad anyway, because I like it anyway. I like the shirt. I bought the shirt. I'm going to wear it. 
We need God's truth in our lives the same way that we need to be told when we have something in our teeth. We need God's truth to be told in our lives the same way that somebody with earphones walking across the street needs to be told that there's a bus coming. We need God's truth the same way that somebody who's about to jump off the ledge of a building needs to hear that there are things worth living for, even though they're not in this world. We need God's truth the same way that our children need to hear that they need to finish their dinner, otherwise they will be malnourished. I could go on for days, but that's what people say when they run out of things to say. So I'm going to just stop. Man, if I would only say what I write down on paper, like this would be a short sermon, you know, like this. But we could get long winded here at RCM. So our next idea is that God provides when we aren't looking for provision. This is a good one. Not just because I wrote it, but because it's true. And it's also not true because I wrote it, but God is here speaking to Ahaz and giving him what he needs when Ahaz isn't looking for help. Remember, Ahaz already looked for help. Ahaz already invested in his help. He already sent gold to the king of Assyria. He already has implemented his plan for success. Husband comes home and says, hey, honey, wouldn't it be nice if we had an, a, a ride-along lawnmower? Wife says, no, I don't think it would be a great idea. And husband's like, man, I already ordered it. <laughs> Better call and cancel it. <sighs> Tell you what. Ahaz has already invested in what he thinks is right, but God is here telling him what he needs to do already. Do you think that God doesn't know what he did with the gold? Do you think that God doesn't know that the king of Assyria is already mounting on horses to come and invade these people? As if Assyria needed any more incentive to go and capture more land, right? It didn't. God is already and still telling him what needs to be done. Trust in me. Ask me for it. I will give it to you. This is a picture of us on a daily basis. Daily. What we think we need is nowhere near what we actually need and what God is providing for us. As a matter of fact, what God provides for us is almost like an insult to us. Like you want relational relief and you got to go apologize. It's like, what? apologize like what God gives us what God offers to us to help alleviate our circumstances is often detestable to us like man I don't even like that idea and we go about doing other things trying to figure out our own way of doing things just so that we can have control of our lives Ahaz is looking to his own righteousness, his own worth, trying to make that what he stands on. That effort is completely ignored by God. Like God doesn't even like acknowledge it. He just continues on like, oh, you think that you, you're, you're righteous enough to not ask me for help? Do you think that you're sufficiently powerful enough not to need me? Do you think that you are sovereign in some kind of way? Whatever. I'm going to tell you anyway that I am going to rescue you. 
I'm going to tell you anyway that I am your God. Ultimately, our wanting to accept God's truth or God's help does not affect its being true or it being good or it being needed at all. Whether we accept God's truth does not affect its truthfulness. God is always true. God is always providing for you and me what is truth. So my second main point, which is the main point above all things, is that we have Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin will conceive have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is good and choose what is good, I'm sorry, to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating butter and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring you, your, your people, and the house of your father such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria, is coming. God has given Ahaz the sign. He says, I'm going to give it to you. This is what it is. Emmanuel, God with us. Ahaz is the heir of David's throne, but has placed his hope outside of that throne, outside of the God of David. He has put it, his hope, in the king of Assyria and has even given God's gold to him in order to help protect him. Having the king of the universe, the king whose army never tires, offering to lend himself to Ahaz is not something that Ahaz uses. So what is God's remedy for this situation? What is God's remedy for the situation that Judah is in? It is himself with us. So this prophecy, this virgin shall conceive and have a son and his name shall be Emmanuel, or she shall name him Emmanuel, is to be understood in two ways. What it meant to them there at that time, and what it meant for the future past that time. So it meant then that the siege by the Syrians and Israel wouldn't last very long. Okay, This idea that by the time the boy or a boy learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating butter and honey, is this idea that by the time it takes a child to know what is right or wrong, this siege is going to be over. So that's a pretty short time in relation to a whole lifespan. Okay, It also means this idea of butter and honey is that things are not going to be as bad as it is. You will be rescued from this time of of hurt and pain from the Syrians and Israel. So that is speaking to them those ideas that, okay, this is not going to last forever. Things are going to get better. Okay, so it is, it, is, it is gracious to them at that time. That prophecy, all prophecy means something to the people who are listening to it and something for the future. So that is what it means to them then. Um, what it means for the future I'm going to go into a, a little bit of greater depth, but I'll try and, and, and speed up because 
Um, I'm running out of time. Uh, what it means for the future is, one, this is a messianic prophecy of how Jesus is going to be conceived. Okay? Um, this interaction between God and Ahaz takes place so that we can see a pattern of how God interacts with the world. It is not uh, in relation to Ahaz. Ahaz is not uh, required for this interaction between God and the world. God is speaking, he is interjecting himself into the world the same way that Christ is interjected into the world without needing normal human method. Okay? Um, God doesn't need a human to speak to us. Okay? We see that throughout the scripture. If everybody would shut their mouths, the rocks would praise God's name, is what we are told, right? So uh, God speaks to us through nature. We see that in the book of Romans. We see uh, God speaking to his people through donkeys. We are told that if we stop talking, that rocks will praise his name. Like God does not need humans in order to work in the world. He can do as he pleases. So this virgin conception means a lot to our understanding of who God is. Um, and so this is pretty crazy that a, a woman would be pregnant without the normal mode and method. There are no children here? Okay. Uh, that a woman would be pregnant without the normal mode and method, that God would provide for his people this child this way is a huge sign. Okay? Do not miss that this Christmas. It is not just a regular birthday. It is not about gifts. It is not about family even. <gasps> he said that. Yes, I did. It's also not about pork, as great as that is. It is about God. Yeah, everybody was fine with family, and then I said pork, and nobody, nobody was okay anymore. Like, what? You know there are people that eat turkey? Come on, man. Don't be so judgmental. Okay. Back to the sermon. Sorry. Christmas is about God interjecting into human history the one who will save us. Two, this is a messianic prophecy on how Jesus was going to be the rescue for God's people. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating butter and honey. This time of pain will be over by the time he is here. Isaiah speaks about the brevity of the siege against Judah. That's the, what it meant for them then. He also means that Jesus signals the rescue for God's people. So you see, this is a rescue for us right now, but this is a rescue for us. A greater rescue to come is Christ. We often look to the world around us just like the king of Judah did for rescue. But we already have our rescue. Your job, whether you have one or not, is not your rescue. Your house, your vehicles, our savings account, our spouses, even the country that we live in are not our rescue. You cannot have a good enough life to rescue you from the pains of this world. The younger people here in this room would learn a lot from the people who have seen more moons than us. 
There will always be something to struggle with. There will always be something to stub your toe against. There will always be pain. There will always be some kind of suffering in your life. I'm sorry to tell you that if you were hoping that it would end. But those things are not our rescue. Our children are not our rescue. We cannot fix our legacy through our children. As a matter of fact, our children end up being a whole lot like us, don't they? And then we ask ourselves, why? Why? I didn't even teach them that. Man. Hannah goes, I don't want it. It's like, where'd you learn that? Who taught you those words? It's in her. Drug or alcohol abuse is not your rescue either. The greatest things that this world could offer you is not your rescue. Your life getting better is not your rescue. For those people who are struggling with all sorts of addictions from pornography to alcohol to drugs to a a number of other things, those things cannot rescue you. They cannot and will not rescue you. You need to be rescued from those things. And God is able. You do not meet a person that is struggling in that way Christian, that God cannot rescue that from. Have that hope. Because Christ in a manger crying for you to one day die on a cross is your rescue and it is their rescue also. It's like if you were to live in a country that is ravaged by civil war and you're at home and a soldier comes up to your front door and says, if you let me stay here, I'll help protect you. And you say, nah, man, I've been in a shooting range before. I can shoot a gun. I'm good. It's like, dude, this guy is trained and capable and armed enough to protect you and you're refusing to be rescued. That is us putting our stock in any of these things that I've mentioned. We take things that are nowhere near good enough to rescue us from the misery of this life. What this is called is having a functional savior. Okay? A functional savior is something that although we claim Christ and we trust in Christ to get us to heaven one day, we have other things that functionally save us from the misery of this world. So yes, Christ is going to take me into heaven, but for right now, what helps me get by is a couple of drinks at night before I go to bed. Because if I don't have that, I can't relax and I can't be good for tomorrow. That's a functional savior. Another functional savior could be like, well, as long as I know that my children are receiving good education and that they have the things that they want, then I'll be okay because that validates all the hurt that I'm going through now. If I could leave my children a house, if I could leave my children a legacy, then I'll be okay. That is a functional savior. Christ comes and saves me, gets me into heaven, and everything in between I need to fill in with little functional saviors. You know what that's called? Idolatry. We look at 
a plethora of other religions, and we say we do not worship like them, little idols, but our idols may not be in stone, may not be beautiful statues in a church, but our idols are hidden in our hearts. We have our rescue. Christ signals the end of our terror. So the terror that you face today has already been put on notice that it is going to end. Take that to the bank. Tell that to your spouse, to your children, to everybody around you. Your terror has been put on notice. The hardships in your life have been put on notice that they are not infinite. We may not be free from those terrors in this lifetime, but they do not last. Third is that this is a messianic promise on how Jesus is the true peace for God's people. We get this from a negative inference, right? Because things are about to get worse for Judah. They're about to get much worse. Judah shall be free from the Syrians and Israel, but the earthly king that they have put their hope in is going to be worse. The Lord will bring on you and your people the house and the house of your father. Such a time has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. We can be like, yes, relief is coming. And then he says, he added this one little last piece. The king of Assyria is coming. Ouch. You're going to get what you asked for. You asked this king to come and rescue you, to come and help destroy these people. He will. But it's not going to be pretty for you either. The king of Assyria could never offer what the king of the universe could. Ahaz brings this king in order to bring peace to his land, but that plan fails. Only Christ can be true peace. Only that king can bring true peace to your life, to my life. So what do we get from this idea is that if Christ is anything, Christ is all things. Christ is not just what saves you and gets you into heaven. No, he is all things. In every moment that you are struggling with or in, in every moment that you are in pain and weakness, Christ is all things. If you are struggling in a difficult marriage, if your spouse isn't what you thought they would be, Christ is all things. If you are struggling financially and you do not know where your next meal is coming from, Christ is all things. If you're sick and your body is failing you and the doctors cannot offer you any glimpse of hope, Christ is all things. True peace does not come from a freedom of pain and weakness. True peace does not come from a perfect family life or anything else that I have mentioned. We will always have something that is wrong. We will always be able to pinpoint a fault in somebody, in everybody. True peace comes from the Father in heaven coming down for you, for me, to live the life that we cannot live, to die the death that we should have died, to give you, to give me eternal life. None of those things can do that. Those things are kings of Assyria. You think that like Judah was in trouble and that God like woke up one morning and was like, oh man, watched one too many uh, 
TV shows on Netflix yesterday, I should go and fix this problem. No. He wasn't reading a book and looked over and said, man, maybe I should help these people. No, we, he, it's not, he is not sending Christ like we send our children to go fetch the remote or to go f- get something for us. No, he is sending Christ actively and purposefully to love and support us. God puts a strain in our life and lets us reach out to faulty railings or to collapsing walls in order that when we look up and see a loving father that is unfailing, we would look at the world and say, I do not need you anymore. God allows these things to happen so that we would wake up to the reality that the world cannot support us cannot provide for us the way that God does. The last idea is that the world's help is no help at all. God paints this picture to Isaiah, to Judah, on how things are going to get worse. You wanted the king of Assyria to come? He's coming. But you still have this promise that Christ will be coming also. So just as a quick recap, God offers has the chance to look and ask for a sign. has hypocritically refuses due to his already having placed his stock in a different king. God tells him the sign anyway, the signal of hope that is Christ. Now God tells them what is coming. The Syrians will bring dishonor by shaving the head and removing the beard and taking hair off in a culture that was very... Um, very ritualistic with their appearance, beard and hair was a sign of goodness. Once it's removed and shaved, you are in mourning, you are in destruction. The, Assyria will occupy the promised land, leaving the nation of Israel without its sovereignty, without its rule. They will be captive. God says that he will bring all of them to come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rock and all the thorn bushes and all the water holes. On that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates to shave the head, to remove the beard. There will be no relief from the Assyrians for these people. But God is merciful anyway. Don't miss the fact that Isaiah here is talking about a remnant of people that will remain. Not everybody will be destroyed. On that day, a man will raise a young cow and two sheep, and from the abundant milk they give, he will eat butter, for every survivor in the land will eat butter and honey. The nation of Israel, once numbered in the millions, now one cow and two sheep will give abundant milk for everybody who survives. Do the math. But they shall eat butter. <laughs> they shall eat good honey. This punishment, this chastisement is not, a, is not final and absolute. There is grace for his people. Though there will be few survivors, God will show them grace. And from those few survivors, we are here today. On that day, every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of silver will become thorns and briars. A man will go there with a bow and arrow because the whole land will be thorns and briars. You will not go out to all the hills where there once 
were tilled with a hoe for fear of the thorns and briars. Those hills will be places for oxen to graze. The beautiful things of this world that can sustain us, that can bring us hope, are worth nothing when they are turned to briars and thorns. The things that we use on a daily basis to bring us hope, to bring us joy, to bring us rescue, are as good as a thorny bush where there once was a vegetable garden. They will all pass away, all these things that we hold on to, but Christ, the glory that is in him, will never pass. This Christmas is a time to celebrate that though we are a a people surrounded by hurt, filled with pain, and even though we are rebellious and unruly people, God has given us himself. We have our Emmanuel. We have God with us this Christmas, this day, and every day. Would we stop trying to make our Emmanuel out of everything else? And would we see that Christ is for us already our rescue, our salvation, our sustenance, our hope? We do not need that world, this world, because of those things. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you because you saw it fit for your son, for you to step out of this world, uh, to, to step out of heaven and onto this world, to become a small baby to live a life from its beginning perfectly so that you could gift us that. Would we see that the faults of our own life, the faults of those around us, are replaced, are substituted completely with your Son? And may we have grace for each other. May we have grace for ourselves. May we have the grace that is in you. Help us to see this Christmas as a time to celebrate our salvation, a time to celebrate your name, a time to celebrate you. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would teach us these things. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconcilechurchmiami.org.